Hello, and welcome to another episode of the 905er. I am Joel McLeod. And I am Roland Tano. And this week, uh, to start off, we're going to suggest that if you're listening to this episode, uh, you might want to pair it with a nice Riesling or perhaps a Chardonnay. As this week, we are talking wine, or more importantly, the wine industry uh, here in the 905 in the Niagara-on-the-Lake region. Uh, we've touched upon how COVID-19 has impacted industries in the 905 in unprecedented fashion. In a, in a previous episode, we talked with Jason Cassis of Equal Parts Hospitality and his venture into a slimmed-down restaurant model for the pandemic. Today, we're taking a look at how COVID-19 has ravaged another sector of the economy in the 905. Tourism has been a vital part of the Niagara region. It is a key part for drawing visitors from all over the country, as well as the United States, to see the beautiful Niagara Falls and to see the historic Niagara-on-the-Lake wineries and region. Tourism is a big part of the business model for many of the smaller to mid-sized wineries here in the Niagara-on-the-Lake area. Collectively, they all make up about a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And COVID-19 has upended that model. With tourism discouraged due to the border, border closure, as well as social distancing measures put in place by the governments, wineries have been forced to innovate and find new business models to keep this vibrant and important industry alive. Today, we talk with Andrea Kaiser, who is the chair of the Wineries of Niagara-on-the-Lake Marketing Board, about the troubles facing the industry, how they are adapting to these unprecedented times, and what they need going forward to ensure the Niagara wineries are strong and pro prosperous post-COVID-19. Enjoy. Today on the 905er, we are joined by Andrea Kaiser, who is the chair of the wineries of the Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, Marketing Association. Andrea, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your new pod and uh, I guess newer podcast. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's a work in progress, but we're uh, we're proud of it so far. Good, um, good. <laughs> Andrea, why, why don't we just, why don't we start off and I'll hand it off to you. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about what the wineries of the Niagara-on-the-Lake uh, does and kind of how the uh, the industry is at the moment. Yeah, of course. Uh, so the wineries of Niagara on the Lake um, is, I think, you know, in terms of our history, we're a little bit ahead of our time um, with a with with what we we created, accomplished in the last, you know, twenty five years. I'm I'm guessing at the date. I apologize. It's 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 incredible um, how long actually the the organization has has been in um, has been in since its inception. Um, it was founded um, based on really a need to let consumers know that uh, wineries were open um, year-round. So certainly when you think back 30, 40 years ago, wine country does not look like what it looks like today. Um, there's been a huge evolution. Uh, we have like almost 100 wineries in Ontario now, um, you know, specifically, you know, about 80 in the Niagara region where we're located. And actually, it's probably over 100 now in Ontario. Um, and at that time, we're talking about seven wineries basically the only wineries in Ontario getting together to say, hey, like, let's work together. Let's be collaborative. We are stronger together if we we put our marketing dollars and our voice and our and our 
ideas in one pot. Um, and it, that was really the, you know, sort of the nemesis or the beginning, not nemesis, but the beginning inception of how, how the organization was created of seven wineries, just wanting to work together. And, and, and because it was such a new industry, like summer was, was fairly, um, you know, good in terms of visitation because we had like the iconic Shaw festival at the time, um, visiting Fort George, a historic downtown, but, you know, come end of, even at that time, probably August, September, when the shot season was over, like everyone just kind of rolled up uh, the doormat and um, there was no, no, no visitation, no, no tourism. So, so that group really had the foresight to understand that it was really important for people to know, number one, that wineries were open. Uh, I still get the question today, like, you know, 30 years later, like, oh, are you guys open in winter? It's like, yeah, we are. <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> and it's actually, we now do so much programming in the winter. It's almost a more exciting time to visit. And the entire, uh, you know, sort of reason for this organization existing has always been to drive visitation in winter. And that was our, our sort of our mandate, our pillar for existing. And, you know, as we go through the conversation today, um, we can talk about how that's, um, you know, for the first time in, you know, 25, 30 years is shifting now that it's not just about visitation, because certainly COVID has um, forced us to to think differently, to to expand our um, our, our programming and, and, and adjust it accordingly. Um, at this point, we have about 25 members. The membership does um, change slightly, but for the most part, we're always at about 25, sometimes up to even 30 members um, that are, of wineries that are located in our organization, specifically in the municipality mm-hmm. of Niagara-on-the-Lake. So uh, on that note, uh, why don't we just dive into it? So COVID-19 hits kind of at the start of what would be your prime tourism season. Um, yes. How So, and tourism has been on a decline around the the province as a whole. So how, how has that impacted uh, not just the, the wineries in your organization, but perhaps give us a mm-hmm. sense of the, the industry as a whole? Um, how, how has that impacted uh, the, the Niagara-on-the-Lake wineries? Yeah, and I think that's a good point to make. I mean, what we're experiencing here in, an, in our community um, is not necessarily much different from, from wineries across Ontario. I mean, we are extremely fortunate that um, we are a highly established tourism destination that, um, you know, is, is, is a sort of iconic flagship place to visit, um, whereas some of the other regions are newer. So it is, you know, uh, probably even harder for them in terms of um, uh, building up that tourism again. But um, I think what... Um, as I mentioned, we've all shifted is is our thinking a little bit, not only in how we do tourism, but also in how uh, we look at um, our wine sales, not necessarily just through the cellar door. And I think the biggest pivot, I know that word has been used <laughs> maybe too much in the last six months, but was this um, immediate shift to wine online sales, uh, which was super exciting for the industry as a whole, because traditionally the idea of, it's really funny, you know, when you think about ordering online, Amazon or whatever platform you're using, um, people have always been in the, in the last few years or becoming super comfortable with ordering online. But for some reason that that behavior didn't translate and move over to wine sales. Um, so that is something that was was a, a unique and interesting opportunity that we felt was a positive uh, out of COVID. 
Certainly, um, we were fortunate as as wineries were deemed an essential service, so we could keep our doors open, uh, keep some you know some team members employed, allow customers to come in. Um, curbside pickup was very big at the time. Obviously, people not wanting necessarily to stand in line at an LCBO, and fortunate enough to be able to drive down the road. Let's say they they live locally in a wine region, and um, and pick up their wines curbside, um, but. Um, you know that we we were super um, excited about this new opportunity to to introduce people to the idea of getting wine to deliver to their door. And one of the things that also in terms of an educational um, opportunity was that a lot of people don't realize that we have. Um, numerous or many, many more wines available um, at the winery than you'd seen in LCBO. So when you think of a store, so, you know, when you think about uh, an LCBO shelf space in terms of how that compares to what's available in wine country, uh, you have so many wines available at the cellar door that that will never be shipped um, sort of across Ontario. So this this really exciting opportunity to showcase some of our unique and uh, special wines that are only available at the cellar door. Uh, so we all uh, really appreciated that opportunity to talk more directly with consumers, um, share our stories, share our, our great wines. And of course, con- um, consumers were really happy, obviously, to be able to stay at home and have wine delivered there. I guess uh, there's a couple of questions that, that come to my mind. Uh, I guess the first question w- would be, how now that we're going into fall and winter, how, how do you think you'll be able to handle that? And, you know, in the Unfortunately, it seems like the inevitable phase two. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then secondly, I guess uh, I was just going to make a comment. Actually, purely coincidentally, yesterday I was um, having some socially distanced socializing with a, with a couple of friends in their backyard. Uh, and they mentioned that they've become one of the few things that, that they can do to socialize it. And they are... Um, even more in the danger age zone than I am, mm-hmm. um, uh, was to go to a winery, um, not in Niagara Lake, but, but certainly mm-hmm. a winery, because they could yeah. sit at picnic tables, have a glass of wine, uh, and meet friends that way. And it was uh, like, you know, so it's actually uh, hadn't occurred to me before that this is uh, something that, you know, one of the things that we can do at the moment, while the weather stays good anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, we're seeing the days get colder. So what, what happens next, I guess? That's a great question. And we've had lots of conversations about (laughs) that in the last few weeks. It's been top of mind, of course. Um, you know, so I would say the one thread of what wineries all, um, uh, so while we did, we were allowed in phase two originally just to have the essential wine purchases. Uh, we were also fortunate enough when um, our industry really sat down and was proactive about developing best practices in the tasting room um, so that, you know, we we were looking at the masks, the shields, the, the extra cleaning, um, the plexiglass. And so we did have um, permission from in our regional health in Niagara earlier on than a lot of restaurants that we were allowed to do tastings within phase two. So that was um, sort of that first change where we were like, okay, now we have to adjust what does the tasting look like uh, for this summer? And one of those first um, instincts, obviously, was to go outside. And that was kind of the easiest thing to obviously execute in a safe way. There were a number of wineries that 
you know, invested in some new outdoor spaces as far as tented areas or even repurposing, for example, a number of wineries might have had event tents for corporate groups and weddings and then repurposing that into um, a tasting area for the summer. So that was, 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 um, you know, a very, um, you know, a great progression of, of the tasting experience in the COVID environment. And then there were some other wineries that also maybe had bigger spaces that said, okay, what can we do inside, but that will be safe. Um, and then, you know, having that extra distance in, in what you might call tasting pods where you're having people sit down. That's been a big element of it as well, is that um, the actual experience of coming into a tasting room this summer has been completely different than in the past, obviously due to COVID, that if you're coming into a wine shop and you're kind of fighting your way up to the bar uh, with a hundred other people on a Saturday, obviously those days are over, but that's been a, in a lot of ways a positive. So it's been um, for customers and our team members to have the opportunity to have you know more intimate conversations, finding out what wines people love, um, matching that up with 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 their um, with their palate, um, has led to a better experience for all. So I, I I actually think a lot of what we do now in wine country, um, in terms of the tasting rooms, I think a lot of those. Um, changes will become residually permanent um, fixtures or permanent um, ways that we do business in the tasting room. And then, you know, we can, we can talk about the winter as well, because obviously that's a different, you know, another thing now we're, we're facing. Um, Andre, I I wanted to touch upon just how important these, like these tasting visits are to the smaller wineries. Um, Because I think when people imagine when they, they picture the wine industry in Ontario, they're picturing like mm-hmm. the, not to name drop here, but like the Jackson Triggs and the Stratuses and the Stroons and the Triuses. Like the, these are big, well-established brands and names. And they think, oh, these guys mm-hmm. are fine. They got the, the big winery in, in Niagara. They'll be all right. But the a, a big chunk of the industry are these smaller kind of, they honestly are really mom and pop wineries, mm-hmm. family-owned wineries mm-hmm. that are, trying to make a go of it and they they count on these tastings and the tourism for people to drive down go into these smaller wineries sample what they have um and make a few purchases and that's because i know i know my wife and i have have done that we've gone in and we've we've done the wine tours we found wine or smaller wineries that were initially not on the shelf in the lcbo yeah but we said oh we really like this okay buy a couple wines and you know okay we got to drive down to to visit uh, different wineries and, and buy a, buy a couple bottles of our our favorites. Um, so I, I, no, I, this is really an important part of their business model. It is, and even for those flagship um, organizations, companies like we have a number of larger, and that's what's the beauty of our particular organization. Um, it has membership from the smallest tiny family of run winery, like with four people, mom and pop to the larger, um, you know, larger organizations. Um, and what's really neat about our organization is that we all have an equal say. Um, we all pay the same membership dues. We all, um, carry the same, um, you know, we respect each other's opinions. And, and I think that just speaks to 
the fact that when we're talking about tourism and cellar door sales, it is a critical element of all wineries um, being financially successful and something that obviously is even more important uh, for those wineries who have limited distribution across some, you know, LCBO or and now grocery, of course. So, yeah, this is like a really big deal for a lot of those small wineries in terms of ensuring that we keep the the tourism focus strong. And, and we recently had a board meeting or a committee meeting with the 25 of us just to talk about those next steps and where is the organization going to go next. Um, and, and, and obviously that's really top of mind for a lot of people. And then the other element is this online sales. So while we were like high peak COVID, uh, you know, April, the, you know, the peak of the lockdown, um, the, the, the increase of, of sales, you know, seller door being delivered was a, a just exponential explosion. But then as the LCBO has reopened, as groceries have reopened and a little bit of tourism has come back, you see that slowly declining, certainly better than pre COVID, but because people are like, Hey, this is kind of cool. I can get some wines coming right here. I don't have to go anywhere. Um, but yeah, you're right. I cannot stress enough um, of of what those cellar door sales mean to to uh, small wineries um, and also to like the growers and because we have to remember like unlike a lot of um, you know maybe if you look at craft beer for example our industry is intrinsically connected to to grape growing and and there is a farm behind that and there is agriculture that needs to be supported and and the one thing you know I need to you know also stress for people is to understand is that that when you are looking to buy local, um, those VQA wine producers, where they are 100% local, uh, that that desire of, per, of purchasing local has is 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 incredible. It's a, it, again one of those silver linings of COVID, and and that you know that desire to support those smaller businesses. And and when you're looking for a wine across Ontario, when it says VQA, you know it's 100%, and that all the grapes are coming from a local grower. I was just going to ask. I have a friend who's a who's a uh, micro brewer, um, <clears throat> so I'm familiar a little bit with, with some of the challenges he faces, and obviously there's parallels, a lot of differences too. But for the smaller, um, uh, for the uh, smaller sort of vineyards, mm-hmm. how difficult is it to get into the LCBO? Um, because certainly I know for the microbreweries, it can be extremely <clears throat> difficult to get in. And if you don't have that, well, how do you sell other than yeah. at the door? Um, no, and that's that. That's a great. I mean, I, I, it's funny. So I teach at the. Or I used to. I taught for ten years at Niagara College um, in a wine business management program, and I, I taught in the largely business planning and marketing. And um, I always love to remind my students um, that. The LCBO is probably the most competitive marketplace in the entire world, like the world, like one of, I think for a long time, they were the biggest alcohol buyer in globe across the globe. So as a small wine producer, you're not just competing with, you know, your, your neighbor down the road, you're competing with wines from Australia, California. Um, you know, and, and when you look at the, uh, you know, so the production costs of Ontario wines versus imported wines uh, with the wages we have. And, and that's all like, I, you know, it's good. Like we're supporting this incredible local economy um, of having good jobs um, and, and taking care of, of our own. But um, it becomes hard, right? Like, I mean, there's no doubt. And there's 
I mean, when you walk into an LCBO, there's only so much space, (laughs) you know, as much as they might like to have all of us in there, um, unless you're going to like, you know, downtown Toronto, um, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Well, I mean, on on that note, um, kind of going on to the online sales, like a lot, a lot of Mm -hmm. the LCBO sales now are going online. Like they have the LCBO app, uh, where you can purchase, you know, your spirits, craft beer, and your yeah. wine, and pick it up at the at a particular location. They were trying to do the 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 mail delivery, but I don't think that's quite worked out to be as flawless, flawlessly executed as they might like. But I, I mean, I, I would like to say, it, like, is that the is that really the future? Is maybe through the LCBO, or maybe um, through some industry web website? Um, or just through the the wineries themselves, but like, how, do you foresee online sales and delivery, mail delivery, being kind of a, a crucial uh, linchpin in the, in the in the wineries business models going forward post COVID? I do, and I'm so glad you mentioned the question because I still need <laughs> to talk about winter, <laughs> and it's the perfect segue. So we actually just decided last week that um, our organization, because we can't host Taste the Season, which is our signature event in November, as we traditionally do. I mean, just to put 2,000, you know, 500 to 700 people in our tasting room on a weekend is not feasible right now. Um, so instead, we have um, relaunched, or we're we haven't relaunched it. Yet, but it's coming out October 1st. Um, we are reconfiguring um, the program and it's going to be focused on online sales. So it's going to be called Taste the Season at Home. And so we've taken some you know nuggets of the of the program from the past. So you know, signature VQA wines that um, you can only get at the cellar door. And traditionally you would come to the winery and you would be able to do a food pairing with it, like a holiday-inspired food pairing, um, either for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Um, so now what we've done is we've created a six pack, um, taste the season six pack for all of our member wineries. Uh, we have a new portal that's going to be launched on October 1st around that, um, that offer. And then included in each six pack will be a feature recipe, um, just to, you know, for your, your holiday dining. So it's really reinventing that visiting experience to be able to do it at home, stay connected with our customers, offer some great wines for the holidays, give them some great local recipes from local chefs and in the area. And so that is the perfect example of how we're trying to adjust and, 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 sort of you know i know the new normal kind of like pivot is is the word of the the words of the phrases of the day but it's truly um the case where where we are trying to um you know you know take something that has you know has been an exciting and a look forward to event and how can we we translate that over to an online experience or an online slash at home experience um and you're right it's going to be critical uh to the success of a lot of wineries because for those who don't have those listings in grocery or LCBO. And, and is, is getting listed on the LC, LCBO website just as, just as difficult as getting into a store? Well, it, it's still like a, a listing process. So, yeah. I mean, obviously there's more um, abilities, obviously, to have a greater portfolio for them because it's not like they have to have a store. But then you also have to think about, you know, from a logistics, there's also a warehouse that can only have so many wines. So, you know, obviously by nature, there's going to be limitations. And then by the fact that they do buy wines from all over the world, we are, you know, it is a very competitive environment. That's not to say that 
um, you know, we, we want people to buy our wines because they're exceptional wines. And, um, and then the, the bonuses that you're supporting, supporting local. So, well, you know, that's, that's the conversation I think it, that needs to happen. Part of it, like, isn't like the LCBO does have a mandate to promote Ontario uh, wines and craft beers. I'll throw those in for a good measure, but they, that their mandate, sure, is, sure. <laughs> their, their mandate is to promote kind of the Ontario um, alcohol industry. Uh, so like our distilleries, the wineries and the craft beer producers in the province, um, they really do have a vested interest in promoting it. And I, I, I guess I probably should have asked you this before, but I mean, like we're not talking like a, a mo- like a little fraction of the of the in of the economy we're talking huge producing numbers and a huge tax base uh for the provincial mm-hmm. uh government here so i mean we're not we're not talking like you're you know oh geez you know good luck to you we're talking a major sector of our provincial economy uh that re- like we can't afford to overlook this yeah and i think the real change though is 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 going to come from what consumers seek to buy. You know, at the end of the day, the LCBO um, will provide the service for what consumers are looking for. I mean, you know, that that's part of their role. Um, so if consumers are seeking more VQA wines and those VQA wine sales start to build and grow, then LCBO is going to order more, you know, so it, it's, it is definitely linked to linked to demand. I mean, that's how most businesses obviously run and are successful. So what's, what's, um, you know, sad and exciting for me at the same time is that, you know, when I look at British Columbia, so from what I understand right now in British Columbia, when you go into um, and you look at the sales market share of local wines in British Columbia at their British Columbia Liquor Board, I guess it would be, I can't remember what the acronym is, but their the market share of their wine sales of local is between 45 and 50 percent of all of the sales that they sell through their provincial liquor board. When you look at LCBO, uh, VQA wines have been sitting at about 8% since I got back in the industry about 18 years ago. And it really fluctuates between 8 and 9% of market share. And that's not changing because, you know, people are not seeking out VQA wines, which you know, some are, I mean, let's like, there are so many passionate people about VQA wines, which is, is so exciting for us. Um, but we really want that to be the norm that, you know, you, it, the the hard part is, is it is a little bit more expensive because of the cost of goods. Um, and, and we're all, I mean, we all, we're all, we all like to get a deal, good value. Why wouldn't we? That's, that's what we want as consumers. But if we decide to make an investment in our local economy and we decide to support, um, local growers, local farm families, as, as you know, there has been obviously this movement because of COVID, um, when you go into the LCBO, you need to look for that VQA and that's really what's going to make the difference because then, you know, those products will start to sell more, higher demand will mean more listings and more products. Um, so they do go hand in hand. Now, with the the uh, sort of in-person cellar door sales, I think you called them, uh, uh, in the winter, will you still be able to do that in, in like a sort of drive drive up kind of thing? Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you asked that question too because we didn't we talked about taste the season at home and mm-hmm. and that pivot to just online, but there still are a number of wineries who are excited about offering some new winter programming. Um, we have a um, certainly I don't know if you've tried to buy a patio heater lately. 
But um, <laughs> it was on the news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's basically impossible. I felt like I won the lottery when I found six a couple weeks ago oh, wow. that will be <laughs> delivered by the end of the month. So uh, we're looking to, you know, certainly extend our patio season as a number of other wineries that I've talked to in the region are. And, um, and, and I, and the number of other wineries that are hoping to evolve that into, you know, winter programming outside. I mean, why not? Right. Like whether it's you're snowshoeing and through the vineyard or cross country skiing on the parkway and coming, you know, um, we have a couple of wineries that are looking at a Christmas market outside, mulled wine, you know, Christmas markets all across Germany um, are very successful, and yeah. those are outdoors. Yeah. So I think we can be very creative. And then, you and, know, we have a really incredible. Yeah, I was going to say. We're, like... we're Canada. Like, we're, we should all be all about owning, celebrating winter. Yeah, and exactly. And eating and drinking in the wintertime. I, 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 I'm a little surprised that we don't. <laughs> have more of these uh but we haven't been doing it already yeah no it sounds exactly. wonderful exactly and i mean yeah. we are so fortunate we also have this iconic winter product called ice wine <laughs> like well on, the, on that note so, I mean, you've got you do have the ice wine festival in february we do yeah uh, I mean, january that, yeah january okay so i mean it's it'll be kind of right in the middle of the winter season exactly. but, i mean that's that's got to be a, a huge thing to look forward to, and I, I don't know what your your plans are to uh, to adjust to that. We'll see what guess what the numbers are like uh, come fall or come yeah. Winter. So I mean, obviously, we'll be keeping a really close eye on on the numbers um, in terms of the second wave. Um, again, I think we I think we think Canadians will want to be outside getting some fresh air. We've uh, also ordered some fleece blankets for those who want to sit outside. And, and, and so, I mean, I think we just have to come up with some really fun and creative ways to enjoy winter. Um, and, uh, and, and traditionally, the Ice Wine Festival was always outside. So I think that uh, we can certainly, with some patio heaters, make this happen. Yeah. Well, if you can sit outside and watch the, the Thai cats play in the middle of winter, you can certainly <laughs> sit outside and drink yeah, some wine. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a fan of the Thai cats. I'm not just in cold down at I bet. Yes, I, I'm very optimistic. We can uh, we can come up with some really really neat. Uh, we've already had members starting to to do some some launch some great winter programs. So I, I was just wondering because um, I'm doing a little bit of research for this. I, I was reading up on how um, some of the smaller wineries are concerned about. Uh, the, the taxation of of bottles and and whatnot that it's going to impede their ability to. I mean, they had a, they had a business model prepared kind of for pre COVID, mm-hmm. and that the problem is COVID has kind of upended that that business model. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm I want to touch a bit on what uh, as a representative of the industry, like what what would you be asking the government or maybe the public at large uh, for help in helping to ensure that some of the smaller wineries are able to to make it through this uh this pandemic and so thank you for the question i mean that's that's a great one and um i mean going back to our original you know our previous conversation you know i'd be asking ontarians to um to look for VQA wines if they want to support local. That is sort of a first step um, that we can do this together. We can support each other. And I mean, that's been a sentiment, not just in our industry, but across, um, 
all communities in terms of supporting local mom and pop restaurants, uh, you know, using the local corner shop of, of supporting those, those small businesses. So that's number one. And then certainly, um, the other two asks that are, are certainly more of government, um, is that we really need, uh, this tax relief that you probably were reading about. So there, there's two elements to it. The one is really critical uh, for especially those small producers. That And what it is, is it's a 6.1% tax that's charged on all cellar door sales. Uh, so this is something that we've been, you know, sort of asking for and um, uh, and having conversations with government about for a number of years, because it's a, a tax that we don't really understand in the sense that other than maybe the history of high taxation on alcohol. So it's a tax that no other business in Ontario pays. So, I mean, we're fine to pay our fair share tax. We collect HST. We obviously pay our corporate tax, but we just don't understand, unlike any other business in Ontario, why, and to be extremely clear, the 6.1% is applied by on every sale that occurs at the winery. So there's no involvement of any other body in selling that wine. It's on our cellar door sales. And, at, you know, to your point, Joel, about small wineries relying so heavily on cellar door sales, if that tax were to be, um, you know, taken away, which is what we're asking for, to be on par with other businesses, that would be a margin that small wineries would enjoy immediately and to be able to to get through this difficult time. So, you know, it was unfair before the pandemic and now it's absolutely imperative that this change happen because these businesses need that that 6.1%. Um, so we're just asking to be ta- taxed fairly as compared to all other businesses in the province. So that's number one. And then the second part of the conversation with taxation um, relates to the LCBO. And, and when you're talking about, like, you know, why don't we see more products or more people investing time and money into the LCBO, um, it, it's it's because essentially as a you know Ontario VQM producer we're looking at margins of to the LCBO of about I think it's 71.5% now is the markup uh I'll say that again not 7 <laughs> 71 so you know for every bottle sold there uh we are losing you know 71% of our margin um we have had some uh small tax relief in like five years, sort of, okay, margin relief on so much sales, but we need a permanent tax relief at this particular juncture in those particular sales channels, which is, is, is LCBO and, um, and grocery, so to speak. Um, a lot of other countries in the world have a, a different sort of system where there's like a three tier tax system and the domestic market has the advantage of not paying the import tax, which is usually about 35%. So we would, uh, argue that to be competitive, that we also need to be relieved of that 35% import tax, quote unquote, of the 71% that we need that advantage to, uh, to be able to compete uh, with, with imports at those at those uh, sales channels. Well, it kind of goes to my, my previous point about that the LCBO really does have, a, I think it has a mandate to promote Ontario, the Ontario alcohol industry between, again, the distillers, the wineries, and the craft beer producers. Um, I don't really see how how uh, uh, charging a tax uh, or, 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 you know, why, why it should be cheaper to buy an import, whether it's, whether it's from California or South Africa or Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, especially in these times, these 
trying times, we need to kind of help our, our local industries as, as much as possible. And I, I think it's a very, what, what, what I find interesting is that you're not asking for a major influx of cash, whereas other other industries are asking for bailout money. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you're just asking for equity, uh, you know, equi- equitable tr- treatment in the industry. Yeah, I mean, certainly that equitable treatment is on the seller door sales is like every other business. And then what we would also like it to your point is to be treated the same that other domestic wine industries are treated abroad so that we can be more competitive and that it does become more affordable for Canadians to support Canadian wine. So that if you do want to buy VQA wine, you don't have to pick between, oh, I can get this great import for $12, but I have to pay at least $15 for a VQA. So if you have that tax relief at LCBO, you have the opportunity to make more VQA wines more competitive. And I think one of the things that's really interesting to, to think about is that do we want to measure sales at LCBO or, you know, by LCBO, like by just sales, or do we want to look at what Ontarians, and this is the conversation I think that's been sparked by COVID of what is the economic impact of these sales for Ontarians, um, that if we are selling more VQA wine, it's going to create more jobs. It's going to support the local farmers. Um, and that's the conversation, which is super interesting about COVID, of having us pay more attention to this, of how supporting local businesses also supports the local economy. Now, coming back to the online sales again, because it is something that I know just speaking again personally, it's something I've only recently kind of become aware of as an option. Um, why, why do you think it is? Is it simply lack of knowledge that previously prevented people from from going online to buy wine? And can you, as wine, do you have to, can you only sell your own wine or can you kind of gather together, you know, can you compete with the LCBO through uh, an online uh, channel? That's a great question uh, as well, because that, you know, obviously from a consumer's perspective, it's, it makes a lot of sense. It's like, let's say that when we launch on October 1st, our new online store, which is a portal really to winery online stores. So it's almost a virtual store because you, you, we cannot, in fact, co-package and 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 co-sell our wines. So, you know, the one question we will get, obviously, is, oh, can I mix the packs? Because that's, you know, the consumer obviously wants as much variety instinctively yeah, as yeah. possible. Um, I think you can co-package with one other winery, but it has, you know, there there has to be an agreement in place. But beyond that, um, there's not really a lot of co-packaging you can do, and it basically has to be um, your own wine. And the exception would be is if you were working with an agent and then an agent can co-package if they have sort of uh, contracts with different um, companies. There's a couple of wine agents out there that do like co-packaging online um, and then they bring in the wines from the um, the wineries and co-package at their property. But yeah, like I can't at my, our winery do like a pack of 12 with 12 different wines in it from different manufacturers. So Which it's fairly is restrictive. exactly what. Uh, your customers would probably love to have that yeah. kind of you know, wine tasting at home. Yeah, that's what they want when they like before COVID. You walk through the LCBO, you'd say, "Oh, I want wine from that winery," or oh, I really mm-hmm. like that that winery is red. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I do. Is we, my wife and I, we go through and say, "Oh, we like that winery, and we like that winery, and mm-hmm. like that winery," which is kind of why mm-hmm. we don't really do the the box subscription uh, yeah, services that some right, wineries right, right. have. Is just because I like your I like a particular winery's 
wine, I don't like it that much. (laughs) (laughs) No, and that's another barrier. Like when you ask the question about what's stopping people from buying is um, online is a lot of the time, like to get free shipping, you need to buy a case. And not everybody buys by the case. (laughs) So, you know, it's more intuitive, like, oh, I need a couple bottles for the weekend or whatever. So, um, you know, with online, it's, it's, it presents those barriers, obviously, by, but, um, you know, you can get great deals, find incredible wines. The six pack seems to be uh, becoming sort of that happy balance. Uh, obviously, we love it when people buy a case, but um, if you're starting out by buying online, it's a great way to way to start and get some good shipping rates as well. Well, it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation as always. I see we're approaching our our forty minutes, so uh, uh, we should probably call call it a day. But I mean, it's really. Um, Certainly, as an industry, when when you know the current government likes to talk about red tape, there are a few industries probably that have more red tape than than uh, people who sell alcohol, whether it's uh, the microbreweries or, or the wineries. Um, and uh, I guess I know that I understand. I sometimes understand. I come from a country which had extremely liberal alcohol laws. Right. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> Originally, it's like, what? <laughs> so it's like yeah. you can only buy it in one place. What? <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, so it's strange coming over here. I mean, I, I I get it, and you know, Canada also has far fewer alcohol problems than than uh, than the mm-hmm. country I grew up in does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's like little little things could really help you. So hopefully, uh, it would be nice if if people were um, people in positions of influence were listening to you. And uh, Doug and Ford, we're looking at you. Things. Yeah, I'm sure he's listening, <laughs> Doug. No, we're great pals, well, even so, yeah. just we appreciate the opportunity to um, tell our story and share what's going on down in wine country. And, uh, you know, it, that's part of the change, right? Like in terms of people understanding, uh, you know, buying local has this incredible effect. You can make a difference. You can be part of that. And that we can do wine touring in winter. <laughs> We're Canadian, right? Yeah, so absolutely, yeah. That, yeah. that education is going to go a long way. <laughs> so. Well, there you go. Well, well uh, thanks thanks uh, again, Thank Andrea. You. We really appreciate the conversation and uh, we uh, wish you all the best over the winter and all, all the wineries down over the lake. And I, I certainly hope to be down there during, well, either during the fall or, or during the winter to uh, to experience it firsthand. That's great. We look forward to seeing you and um, thank you again and congratulations on your podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you to Andrea for coming on. That was a great uh, discussion and definitely left me uh, wanting to uh, knock back a glass or two of my favorite uh, Riesling. Um, we're going to go straight into other news. Roland, what do you have for us? Well, I just noticed this week, um, and it's part of a trend that's happening certainly across the GTA um, but uh, across all of Ontario to an extent, and that is uh, applications for um, different, usually developers, but but also other industries to purchase golf courses for the purposes of either building houses or, as in this case, this just this week, um, it's uh, Nelson Aggregates. Uh, seeking to uh, purchase uh, Burlington Burlington Springs Golf Course uh, to to run a quarry, um, 
that's somewhat more un- unusual in some ways, and that, that that that's certainly not for development purposes. And I guess the one thing you can say with, with the aggregates organization uh, is that at least you get the land back afterwards, and it tends to be made available as a park or something like that, as um, has certainly happened in the past. Uh, however, um, it is certainly a case um, that. In essence, golf courses have become in recent years a a resource of of green space that is not covered by the um, by, by by the green belt uh, legislation. So they're relatively easy for developers to sort of target. So yeah, they're, they're relatively easy to as a as a target. So we're seeing so just at, just in Burlington, there are multiple applications um, for for two golf courses now. I believe there are some in Hamilton. Glen Abbey, which which has held the Canadian Open golf most years since, since I've been living in Canada anyway, and I know long before that, has been going through a long process of um, uh, the uh, the uh, the town council trying to do whatever it can to to block uh, the development of Glen Abbey um, for for houses and also uh, commercial uh, properties. Um, and the latest news from there is that the Ontario Superior Court of Justice has basically said, you know, nothing to do with us. You have to let LPAT decide this thing, which I think Oakville has been doing everything it possibly can to try and avoid. So now it goes to LPAT and uh, and uh, that uh, organization will get to decide the fate of these golf courses. But it's, it's, it's something I, I, that's very interesting and I, I think it's a, a, um, a phenomenon we need to be aware of. Uh, and the question needs to be asked whether these golf courses not this is not about defending golf courses necessarily um I, I don't particularly think golf courses are particularly environmentally friendly areas they're private land they're not necessarily open to the public there's a lot of um drawbacks with 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 golf courses and golf course owners seem to agree recently because they seem to see profits uh, elsewhere but as a loss of a resource of green space i, I think it's an important subject um that, that really needs to uh, be addressed. Excellent point. Okay. I am going to uh, bring up the topic of masks. Um, we've seen uh, in numerous uh, uh, reports in the, in the news, uh, the anti-mask protests are starting to pick up steam here in the 905 region. Um, it seems that we can't keep everything south of, south of the border as we've seen protests in Niagara, uh, recently in Oakville, and as well as in Mississauga, and I believe today it even made its way into Toronto. So it's just been slowly creeping up the QEW, it seems. But this anti-mask fervor is, I think it's a dangerous thing to be having to deal with, especially as we are starting to see evidence of a second wave here in the province, and especially in this region, especially in Peel, where Mississauga is. We're seeing spikes in case numbers and i think we're just shy of 500 on average uh a day of new cases here in here in ontario which is not a it's not a good place to be uh and the and these uh these anti-mass protests i think do nothing to help the the situation and and quite frankly right now our mask our mask is our best defense regardless of yeah, age or absolutely. ability and the thing I find most worrying about this, and actually it feeds into a few other stories that have been in the news, not necessarily to do with the 905 region, but have been in the news this week, is it speaks to that, or A, that some of the worst aspects of, of US 
the US situation creeping across our borders uh, and the inability to discern fact from fiction easily that i'm not necessarily suggesting these people are dishonest but they are very very misguided uh i would say and it's worrying that they should be able to have those views um given given the information that's out there i think that well exactly that i think the the problem is they want to present it as again it's the other side debate the infamous oh it's the other side you have there's two sides to every debate and it's not the case with this um the, the science is in. We know that masks are helping to save lives. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it floors me that we see the, this mask kind of creeping in as, oh, we have to have this debate. And it's, it's not. Masks, nobody's impinge, infringing on your freedom. I am yours. I mean, we're still able to criticize government and, 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 and protest and, and do all those things. No, not a single one of our charter rights ha- is being infringed or or denied by wearing a mask. It's no different in my mind than being told for health and safety reasons, you have to wear a shirt and pants when you go into a business. Uh, you know, none, or you have to wear a your seatbelt when you drive a car. There, there's nothing uh, stopping that. Or being told you cannot smoke inside of a restaurant. There's there's nothing stopping us. There's no infringement of our, our civil liber- our civil liberties, our rights, or our charter rights. It is a just a new measure that we have to get used to. It just takes a little bit of practice. It's different, granted, but you know what? Everything was different at one point, and I, I don't see it. It's not causing us any irreparable mental harm. It's not causing us to lose something. It's causing us to say, hey, you know what? I care about you. Because that's the thing is you're not wearing a mask for your safety. You're wearing it for everybody else's. Uh, it's as much as anything. It's it's a courtesy. Uh, it's courtesy to the shop staff of the shops you go into. It's a courtesy for everybody you meet along the way. It you know a, as a requirement to deal with a horrible situation. Really, it could be an awful lot worse. Um, oh. I, I know I rattled on on a Facebook post a week or so ago about you know. Uh, when my mother was a kid, she went to school with a gas mask over her shoulder. Uh, you know, things. Sometimes you have to do things that you don't enjoy doing. Get over it, guys. Come on. You know, um, and, and there are a small number of people with genuine reasons why they can't wear face masks, and everybody accepts that and knows that. But this has nothing to do with that. No, this um, is it, this is just people who read some QAnon bullshit online and they did a google search and bought into all the wrong stuff it's it's misinformation it's propaganda it's stupid don't do it wear a mask and we're all going to get through this together absolutely all right well i'm going to leave it at that that's our episode for this week uh you can find us online we are on facebook twitter and instagram look for 905er on there as well you can visit 905er.ca to check out back episodes as well as we occasionally post the uh the odd article uh an editorial piece from either roland or myself there and if you have an opinion on the episode or critique that you want us to know about feel free to email us at info at 905er.ca And please like, subscribe, and give us five-star ratings on whichever app you happen to be listening to us on. Thanks very much, everyone, and we'll see you next week.
looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.